all mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi produce mushrooms. Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. the dirt show i'm higher peaks and this is lady sativa and lady sativa is sick damn kids the walking (laughs) petri dishes pottery (laughs) well the whole damn family is sick so never fails yeah and so that's not the coronavirus that's (laughs) it's i hope not Uh, got some lime (laughs) everybody acts like it is around here though um But uh, that's part of the reason why we've had this little break. Also, too, I've had some RSS feed problems. I've had to try to iron out. I don't. Apparently, some of them are ironed out because he checked for me tonight. Yeah. But uh, it, it just basically uh, the titles of my podcast have been we off. We're just the dirt show. We're just the dirt show right now, and a couple of the pla- a few of the platforms had some issues i guess but it seems like they've gotten ironed out so yeah i got it you said it was having a problem on podcast addict and it worked just fine for me yeah so podcast addict was one of them so anybody that's on podcast addict if you can't play the episode try downloading it and and then you said it played and then it would play and that's no bullshit i don't, i'm not trying to get downloads <laughs> So, uh, yeah, um, but just, just to let people know. So now we're back on schedule. This one came out late, of course, but uh, we'll be back on schedule for Tuesdays. Okay, so look for us this coming Tuesday. Well, Tuesdays, like Monday night is when he starts. Tuesday morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning is when it gets released. Yeah, it takes like two or three hours on this feed. I don't, again, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I'll, I'll get that figured out. So. He ain't got to lie to kick it. He is up until 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning doing that. Yeah. For the love of all my listeners. <laughs> so let's quickly just get through this. I know you're sick and, and we got to get on. We had a great interview um, coming up. So I just want to mention, it says here uh, on the news, uh, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. You know who that is? Uh-huh. He's one of the presidential candidates. He's making moves. Um, he had discussed that marijuana use, this was in an interview, he said he would support it, but... Um, he said it would increase domestic violence and would mean letting young people, this is quote, young people ruin their future. So, wow. He's going to support it, but <clears throat> I don't, I have nothing to say. Oregon is, Oregon is the, everybody's ruined based I'm going, on this. I'm going to put my soapbox to the side tonight. I'm too sick for that shit. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, get you. You know, uh, trying to ruffle my feathers. No, we'll go on to the next one. So Major League Baseball, they, you know, they had really recently removed marijuana from its banned substances, right? Yeah. Which is pretty cool. NFL won't. Um, but a top official clarified in a new memo that players are still barred from being sponsored by or investing in the cannabis industry, which is funny because maybe I can see sponsoring, but investing in, are you serious? That's pretty cool. 
not being able to? Oh, not being able to. No, that's not cool. Yeah, you are sick, aren't you? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, <laughs> I opened it so I could read along. <laughs> uh, it also says the cannabis industry and team doctors can't recommend medical marijuana. I, that's not surprising. No, I guess it's always it's always been that kind of medical cannot recommend. It says, however, the league is launching a program to test and certify CBD products. I, I imagine that's for use, I guess. I well, seeing as that's federally legal, they can't keep them from doing that, I suppose. Yeah, I just know what they mean by test and certify. So, um, okay. Maybe to make sure there's very, there's absolutely no, no THC, THC whatsoever. Right. Like it has to be under the zero, legal. Zero, zero. <laughs> well, they actually now it's like the legal in Oregon has been raised just a little bit. So it's more realistic. So if it's like 2% and below, it's within the legal limit of uh, like hemp is what they're looking for. I see. Yeah. Cause it like the 0.48% for THC is so unrealistic for so many hemp farmers that they, they like, you have to nail it just right. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of them had come in and complained that, um, you know, that their, their rate, they're raising it because of how much of a strife it was to nail that. You know, mm. it has to be under 1%. And so, like, Point. when you see stuff that's like 0.48, it's amazing. I mean, industrial hemp, I think, you know, the stuff that grows 10 foot tall and then doesn't spread out or anything. I, as far as I know, that's like zero, zero. But no one grows that shit around here. I don't here. think anybody tries to smoke it is what it is. <laughs> that's, true. that's true. They're like, nah, no. nah. Like right. smoking sticks. <laughs> the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled that the smell of marijuana emanating from a house is sufficient evidence to, quote, search the entire house for evidence of marijuana possession, including any safes and locked boxes. Now, I went, I'm not going to go into much detail, but here's what I did see is that basically this gentleman had apparently probably was smoking the joint, but he threw it out in his trash can or it was smoldering in the trash can or something and the cops had come to his house for something and smelled the marijuana and were able to secure some sort of warrant based on the smell and then were able to also search his quote-unquote safe or locked boxes i'm not sure what it was and found a, a gun i believe which then of course exponentially made it worse and this so now he's <laughs> a drug dealer yeah, and this goes back to, I guess, the states that are still illegal because that wouldn't necessarily happen in Oregon. Right. I don't know if that could happen because the smell of marijuana is everywhere in the I valley. I walk out my front door and smell <laughs> so, marijuana and it might not be mine. But this is a big deal. And I guess people can look this up to get all the details. But man, I mean, this is obviously it was a big court case and... Um, and they're ruling that it was okay for them to get this warrant based on smell, which is fucked up, yeah. I mean, to be honest. so Like, I can understand if you smell a meth lab coming, then yeah, please <laughs> right, issue right. a warrant and break into the house. But that's because I don't want that shit blowing up that close to my house. <laughs> exactly. I know what happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's just too much speculation, if you ask me. Yeah, exactly. This is funny. The Department of Veteran Affairs, Veterans Health Administration, tweeted, Marijuana, natural? equals safe right not necessarily here's what i want to tweet back vicodin prescribed by your doctor given to you by your pharmacist equals safe right not necessarily <laughs> you know i get where they're coming from but i mean this is just 
Well, well done tweet. <laughs> Round of applause. <laughs> Where's my thing? I gotta. I wish I could find my. <laughs> that's good enough. Okay. That's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and that's pretty much it. I mean, the states—they're all trying to pass some medical stuff, but not. I mean, it's just you know a bunch of bills going through. Um. So really, that's it. Next to the fact that hey, let's throw some uh, let's throw some health in there, right? A study found that medical cannabis offers a possible clinical advantage in fibromyalgia patients. Hell yeah. Especially in those with sleep dysfunctions. So another study, I know we mentioned those. I always trying to find studies that are coming out uh, like this. So that's why I mention them pretty much every time. But mm -hmm. um, so fibromyalgia, check that one up. I mean, that's a pretty bad one for pain. Yeah, it is definitely. I was, right. I was reading ahead at the same time, seeing if no, there was good. anything cool. We, we know you're not feeling so good, so <laughs> let's just move on. So I had Kyle Kaczynski on. Now, if no one remembers Kyle, Kyle was Gross Science originally from the interview. That was quite a few interviews. I believe that was 20, uh, 20 episodes ago or so. Gosh, that's so long ago. Actually, if I'm correct, that was episode 33. So that was, that was way back. Mm-hmm. But it was a great episode, and I had a great talk with him. Now, Kyle is still head of R&D with Gross Science. So this is essentially what he's doing now, but he's doing a lot of other stuff too. He's now also a certified crop advisor for the ASA, or the American Society of Agronomy. So he's doing the soil science hardcore still. Agronomy. Agronomy. Mm. I might have to look at that actually. Why don't you look that up while I'm talking? what that definition is now he's also uh he's a consultant as well he's started a business with a few other consultants a uh, biological consultants actually and it's called mycophyte solutions and that's using uh basically fungi to improve agricultural situations uh mycological uses for growing mushrooms like say on waste products stuff like that mm -hmm bioremediate so as you know or i know fungus uh, mushrooms and cannabis both are bioremediators so mm -hmm. they will pull heavy metals and toxins from the soil which is one reason why you should be very careful with your heavy metals and pesticides and stuff with cannabis so mm -hmm. and, and you know now that mushrooms are coming around this is something we're gonna have to look at there as well uh and also just to mention he's also now is writing a book or co-authoring a book called The Mycology of Cannabis, which is real, I think is gonna be cool. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fungus related to cannabis and a bunch of stuff there. Now he's already done his first draft. So they're like, he's already hit a first benchmark on that. So, I mean, he's he's pushing full forward on that. Yeah, so I think- Nearly there. Yeah, and so once he comes out with that book, I think we'll have him back on and we'll be able to talk about that. Nice. So he's doing a ton of stuff. Now on this episode, we talk about rust fungus. Okay, now I Finally. promise- I think I've promised this episode for like a year now. We've been searching for someone to talk about with it. <laughs> well, not only that, but it's just this fungus issue. And, you know, I put the quote at the first of the episode, but bottom line is, you know, fungus is uh, these pathogens, I should say, are affecting us more and more in these states that have hemp, um, especially here. You know, we're seeing these new bugs, aphids. And we're seeing these new pathogens that are coming through because of this monocropping and right. and these big farms that are butted up next to each other and such. So we talk about that, the rust fungus issue specifically. I talk about, you know, how I've dealt with it and his his feedback and And I gotta say I could understand how a lot of that stuff gets pushed around Southern Oregon. Yeah. 
because we are in a bowl. Yeah, it's a valley. Everything just gets moved around. And like um, one of my coworkers had mentioned saying, it's the worst. This is the worst air I've ever breathed, took a breath of since, you know, I've lived. I even lived in L.A. I'm just like, okay, well, I doubt that it's that bad. You know, just because it has a lot of pollen count doesn't mean our air is horrible. Well, no, and but our air can get pretty bad at times it just can. because of being a valley. We are in a bowl, yeah. but we do get a the lot wind. of airflow through here because we are still, we got ocean wind coming in so if yeah. you can smell the ocean coming in i'm pretty sure that the air that we got here moves out too <laughs> absolutely absolutely but, by the way the definition of agronomy yeah is the science of soil management and crop production there you go so i mean it's exactly <laughs> <Cut and> dry <laughs> perfect it's exactly what i expected yep me too <laughs> He's very smart when it comes to soil science. And then in the interview, we wrap up talking about his use with, uh, you know, psychedelics. And, you know, we talk back and forth about some things concerning that. So it was a great talk. I hope everybody enjoys it. We will see you this Tuesday again, or we'll be releasing the next episode Tuesday. Hopefully Lady Sativa is not sick by then. Hopefully. And hopefully, since I'm not the, I haven't been sick yet, that I am you know, hopefully I'm not sick by then. I'll dose them up on something. <laughs> All right. So. I'm not sick. What are you talking about? Organ love. Organ love. Stay rooted. So my name is Kyle Kaczynski. I'm currently serving as the head of research and development for Growth Science Nutrients. Um, I also recently became a certified crop advisor through the American Society of Agronomy. So, you know, a lot of agronomy work, I guess that probably is more um, influential on the hemp side of things versus like indoor growth. Um, recently, with a group of people, started a group of biological consultants called Mycophyte Solutions. And there, I said, we're a team of biological consultants and we really focus on utilizing fungi to help improve the environment. So that includes everything from agriculture to mycology, you know, people just trying to grow mushrooms on waste products and whatnot. And then uh, also bioremediation type work. So using fungi or plants to help remediate contaminated areas, whether they be contaminated with petroleum-based oils or uh, heavy metals, you know, it just depends, or biological contamination. So, yeah, that's Microfight Solutions. And then um, I'm also currently working on a book with a partner of mine. He is also a part of Microfight Solutions named Brandon Potter. And we are working on a book called Mycology of Cannabis. So we went to school together to study mycology and uh, we met here in the same lab. So we met there and just kind of, we were both really interested in fungi and really interested in cannabis, you know, and we kind of bonded over that and we're just spitballing. And day I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to write a book called The Mycology of Cannabis. It talks about, you know, cannabis, fungi and the interactions and whatnot. And he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, do you want to partner? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. So we kind of teamed up from there and it, you know, it's been a few years in the works and we just finished our first rough draft of it. So, you know, that's a milestone, I guess for us, it feels cool. And in that, which we can go into more of that later, but it kind of outlines all the different ways um, that 
fungi interact with the cannabis plant. So everything from soil decomposers to mycorrhizal fungi to endophinic fungi, and then obviously pathogens as well, such as powder mildew, detritus, and so on. And also just like why fungi are so important in agriculture in general. So that's kind of uh, a background of where I am at. Uh, well, thank you. We appreciate that. Uh, obviously, you have uh, much experience in the fungal world. Now, you know, as a podcast, we've moved on into um, what I think we would call, well, we've deemed psychoactive um, plants and, and um, entheogens and stuff. Uh, so we really are looking at not only cannabis, but actually um, uh, mushrooms and those types of things and how they affect us. Uh, you know, mushrooms are very, I've said this a couple times, but mushrooms are so potent. You know, they can be food, they can be a drug, and they can kill you. Uh, very, very clear lines there, too. So, right. so mushrooms and fungus has this really big effect on everybody. Um, when you talk about cannabis, is there a relationship? I know that cannabis runs on endomycorrhizae types it's not an ecto thing like it doesn't you know having a bed necessarily doesn't benefit you does that does that is that true yeah as far as we know and as far as um research and literature has shown it is only endomycorrhizae that are able to infect cannabis i don't as far as i'm aware there's been no reports of ectomycorrhizal fungi infecting cannabis which in general that would make sense because endomycorrhizae are more so for you know, you see them more commonly with annuals or grass crops, whereas exos are kind of known more so for woodier plants, trees and shrubs and whatnot. So, you know, maybe in the future we'll learn something else. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we briefly touched earlier before we started the podcast, we touched about the fungus affecting cannabis. And this is something that's happening across the state. You've seen it in Eugene. You've seen different uh, um, fungal issues that you've been able to either isolate or at least identify. And we're seeing it also in Southern Oregon when it comes to fungal issues. Do you think this is something that's going to be a, an issue soon? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it already is happening, you know. But yeah, sure. Especially with hemp, you know, that's a big deal. And now people are growing acreages of cannabis, thousands of acres of cannabis. And they're mu the farms are much closer together, so the spread of these pathogens can happen. And, you know, now the fun these particular pathogenic fungi, they have a host plant to go on. And, um, yeah, so I, I think the more cannabis cultivation that we see, the more we're going to see various pathogens that maybe we haven't really encountered before. Um I often you know, wonder. Wait. I often wonder with fungal diseases too if we haven't seen them and just didn't know it. Like you know, with uh, like what's that's a good question. What what is a good way to deal with this fungus before it hits? Uh, so yeah, I, I suppose it depends on which particular fungus you're talking about. Um, you know, there are some broad general things that you can do that kind of like help with all fungi, but I think it is good to identify you know what 
what the organism is that is causing this issue, just so you know, because for instance, um, if you have a particular fungal pathogen and you're able to identify it, maybe the treatment for it is the same regardless of what fungus it is. But maybe, you know, you're growing tomatoes and this fungus can also exist on your tomato plant. So now you have an alternative host that you have near your cannabis plants and maybe you're spraying your cannabis and you're like, shit, this fungus just keeps coming back. And it's because it was also on the tomato plant. So there's one particular reason why I think it is, it behooves us to identify the organism that's causing the damage. Now, yeah, there's, there's a broad range of severity of incidences and like how that's going to affect your crop. For instance, um, pottery mildew can be dealt with. It's not pleasurable. You know, it, it, it sucks, but you can deal with that. Whereas some of these like fusarium will, like we said, they're going to take out your plant, your whole crop in like a week or something. Right. So yeah, it really, it really just depends. And, um, a lot of these soil borne fungi that are pathogenic to cannabis, we haven't necessarily seen as much in the past, um, I think fusarium is a great example of that, verticillium, things like that, where we've seen them in the past. But now that we're planting into native soil, in particular with hemp, you know, um, these diseases are being expressed more and more frequently. And I think that part of it is those fungi were in the soil, you know, they're just always present. And a lot of it may also be due to the particular season and the environment making it more conducive. So these fungi can attack these plants. Maybe the plants are stressed out or unhealthy. A lot of the hemp fields that I saw this past year were stressed out and unhealthy. Um, and yeah. So in particular, if you get cool weather, you know, and you have cool, damp soils and waterlogged, some of those are like prime conditions for these pathogens just to take off and really wipe out a crop. Um, so I, I think that in the future, um, breeding is going to play a big role in fungal resistance or in plant resistance to fungi. Um, but that's just kind of not where we're at right now. I think right now people are mainly breeding for, um, so it looks good on Instagram and smells good. <laughs> sure. High THC, but, uh, you know, people say they, um, they want to breed for like uh, powdery mildew resistance, but try resistance. So I think people are starting to, but, uh, but it's definitely a, the breeding process is not easy. It's, it's definitely difficult. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, my concern is that these people have to treat these plants with fungus issues. And so do you know of any type of treatments that would classify as organic? And and the reason I ask that is because uh, with cannabis, it's a medicine. It's going to be tested by OLCC here in Oregon. Um, and I know that when I got the rust, one of the reasons I kind of identified it as rust was because it was systemic, meaning it was not like PM where it was on the surface of the leaf. It was in the plant, uh, which again led me to believe it was rust because when I treated it with 
same things like strepto my season and uh you know i used all i used several bacteria um it would work for a week and then it would stop working it would come back again and then i finally did a nuke bomb of the garden foss i don't know if you've heard of that i'm not familiar with that uh it's made by monterey and it is okay. a it's a, a mono and di um potassium potassium salts okay. of phosphoric acid does that make okay. sense yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so because that stuff is systemic, it actually took care of the problem. Really? It did. Um, it actually wiped it out at the very end on these plants. I, I really fought for, for months. And then um, at the end, I, I said, okay, these plants I'm not going to consume. I'm going to do, do okay. testing on. And so I used the garden foss and it already said on the label that it's systemic. It basically gets in the plant and um, it's, it's a version of phosphorus. It is the nutrient phosphorus. It's not usable by the plant, but it is uptaked in the cells and it works. The, the thing that really is scares me is like, I don't know, even with the research I did after this, I don't know if that's healthy to consume because if you look at MSD or MSD, what is it? MSDS sheets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of information on combustion of material. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Right. That, that's a great point. That's a great point. I'll, yeah. There's hardly any. Right. So when I looked up this phosphorus material, this, this chemical or whatever you want to call it, uh, there was no information really on the, what would happen if you combusted it. What I did right. find is that when you, like on the MSDS sheets, it said when you had a fire in your building, this is what would happen. And it produced phosphoric oxides, which are um, known as uh, a carcinogen. Right. So the best, the best thing I could say is that when I use that material, if I was to burn that cannabis afterwards, is that that phosphorus would probably still be in there and it would produce phosphorus oxides and it would probably be unhealthy. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that, that's a great point. I've done some I, work, I think, man. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And I think that um, in that instance, better be safe than sorry, you know, and just destroy it. And so I know that phosphite, you know, phosphate and phosphite is a antifungal compound, whereas phosphate is a nutrient. Um, so maybe it has some, this garden phos product, it, maybe it has something to do with that. I, I'll have to look into that more. Was well, that an organic product? Is that um, registered for organic use? Well, see, so here's the thing. It wasn't OMRI listed, but when I did the research, it was listed as organic. It's almost like the whole. It's almost like the whole full spectrum thing. Like what your what is your definition of organic? So, like I said, it wasn't Omri listed on the bottle, but if you did research, it was an organic product. Um, but it has it's been used in vegetables. Like with the research that I did, it was used in vegetables. That's where they did their tests early in the 1900s on this phosphorus. They did tests where, because it's still the nutrient phosphorus, they they thought that they could use it as a nutrient and. Um, yeah. It would be used by the plant in a way that would, you know, that they would normally use phosphorus. And what they saw in these tests is that it did get uptaked by the plant, but it was not used in terms of a nutrient. It was just uptaked into the cells 
and it was, you know, had this fungal activity going on or whatever, but, um, but it was not a nutrient to the plant. And the other thing was that phosphorus can be used up by a plant, but not this form of it. So once it's in it, it doesn't get used up necessarily. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, yeah, it really sounds like phosphite to me. And to back up um, for a minute, I guess just to clarify, because, you know, with with my current position now with the fertilizer company and whatnot, um, organic, talking about that and organic registration and what that means. So fertilizers are not organic. They are registered for use in organic production. And then the tomato or strawberry that you grow, that can be certified as organic by the USDA, right? Um, and as far as being allowed for use in organic production, right? So there are various agencies that will register products. All of these agencies, they follow what's called the NOP standards, so the National Organic Program set for these standards, and that kind of has a list of ingredients that you can use and cer certain like organic compounds that cannot be used. I can't think of any examples right now, but there are certain synthetic compounds that are allowed. For interest, for example, um, Potassium hydroxide, that's not an organic, that's synthetic. But that is allowed to be used um, when you are extract, when you're extracting kelp. When you're making a kelp extract, you're allowed to use potassium hydroxide. So if you see a kelp product that has a super high K in the NPK value, the last number's really high, probably because they use a lot of potassium hydroxide and that product can still be considered organic or it can still be allowed for use in organic production. Right. Uh, same thing with phosphoric acid and, uh, and fish products. Um, so yeah. And then Omri CDFA with the, the Washington state department of agriculture, they all kind of have their own, organic program and you could register for instance in the state of california we register our products and then we register with the department of agriculture and then we also register them with their oim their organic input material so that is one way that growers can be can kind of vet products i guess and make sure that they are allowed for use if they are growing an organic crop. Well, recently that's become a big thing is I've seen a lot of bottles going not only for the Omri listing, but also the CDFA and such. And, uh, okay. Yeah, totally. So a lot of companies are doing that. And my uh, a point I want to make is just because it has these labels does not make them necessarily a better or even a safe product. A lot of organic materials, they're going to be high in uh, heavy metals just due to the world we live in and bioaccumulation, depending on what the organic material is. So I'm not saying don't use them. I think, you know, I think organic products are great and they exist for a reason. Um, I guess just be skeptical and do your research, right? And talk to the companies and ask them for um, lab reports, for heavy metal reports and all that stuff. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and, 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 
Well, and that's my concern, like with this garden foss. I don't know that OLCC can even test for something like this because it is a nutrient. Right. And so if that's the case, if a farmer knew this and they wanted to save their crop, they could spray this stuff on their whole crop. You know, and I, I hate to put this out there as info because right. people are going to hear this, right? right. And people are going to be right. like, oh, well, I can use this to kill that shit. And then it's not going to be tested. I, again, that's speculation. I don't know what OLCC right. can see. But in my logic, it says that if it's a nutrient, they're probably not going to catch it. Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm concerned there. I'm concerned with the large amount of hemp. Like you said, like these problems are now popping up. Jackson County is one of the largest counties of hemp growers in the state. Uh, during the summertime, literally, you can't drive pretty much anywhere outside of the city and not see hemp fields everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, Wild. like, yeah, absolutely. So, like you're pointing out, I think all these problems are going to crop up, so to speak, um, because of the amount of volume of just plant material that is being produced and it's a monocropping situation it's not even uh you know we're not talking about like jackson county has really turned into freaking vineyards and weed and i i'm concerned about all that stuff because that's not only is it monocropping but there's a whole host of problems that could come up with that yeah 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 there's a lot of issues with that that there yeah yeah there's a lot of issues with that um I don't even know where to start with that one yet. Right. So what's your opinion? How, like when I got my plants going this last year, I think the reason I picked up the rust is because, yeah, it's probably in my yard somewhere, I imagine, or my neighbor's yard or something. But um, it was when it was cold nights and warm days. And I think pulling my plants, because I, I have to transition between indoor to outdoor because I don't mm -hmm. grow indoor, but I like right now we're making seed selections. And then okay. come March, we're gonna, I'm gonna start indoors and I'm gonna have all my seeds going indoors. And then come April, May, I'm gonna start hardening them off and bring them out and right. then I'll right. grow outdoors. So I don't, you know, everybody doesn't do my method, meaning that not everybody's gonna have start indoors and go outdoors. But I think that is, if people do do that, that is one of the biggest ways to be able to pick up these fungus issues. And then another point I want to make real quick is that I didn't realize it at first, but when you water your plants, a lot of times, I mean, most of the time you don't want to share that water. You don't want to, uh, I guess when I spray a plant, I don't want to spray the plant next to it. Does that, you don't want that sh stuff touching. Oh, I see what you're saying. As far as, yeah, transmitting the fungus. Yeah, most fungi are producing spore, you know, on right. the leaf tissue, they'll be producing spores and really they're asexual spores that are referred to as canidia. Um, and they're wind, they're spread by wind, you know, so the water, yeah, sure. But if you, if you see like spores on the leaf surface of the tissue, it's likely already all over all the plants, you know? I was able to isolate the plants though. I was able to literally take the infected plants. I white, I, I straight up just burned them. And, okay. um, and then also too, with my research, it was saying that you need to, like I was keeping, like my plants looked weak for the first, like uh, June, in June, all of June, my plants looked really bad because I was staying ahead of the death. Like I was clipping leaves 
every day, right, staying right, ahead right. of, and it actually worked. It, it actually worked to get rid of it. So it was like it would start in certain spots and then it would become systemic and work its way through the plant. But if you were able to stay ahead of it, it was okay. Not okay, but I, nonetheless, I was able to save about six plants. Um, out so of, were these from seed or clone? Seed. That was okay. the other thing too, is that um, I only grow from seed because of several reasons, but one of them being the Me vigor too. and the health and the fact that I have the time. You know, I yeah. don't mind starting in February to have a crop in November. And right. so um, that, that seed time has, it really is the only not benefit of that is pheno hunting all the time. I'm not always guaranteed the, you know, specific cut or whatever pheno this, you know, I'm going to get. Um, but you're going to have something different that yeah. other people may not have. Right. And um, you don't have to keep mothers and you nope. don't have to take clones. Like nope. I, I grow from seed as well. And I prefer that. And I, you know, make seed too. Me and too. I, I just prefer that way to grow. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. If you're in a commercial facility, I understand why people are taking clones. I understand it. But me personally, um, yeah. Like, well, and the, and the fact is, is that I've had a couple farms I've talked to that actually got wiped out by some sort of fungus that wasn't identified, but yeah. that, you know, had so, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of plants wiped out. Um, I, what, what was really weird with the rust fungus. And like I said, I'm pretty sure I identified it. It started out looking, this is going to be funny, but it started out looking like a, a, um, deficiency. It looked like right. a, um, a cow mag. Which is funny because that's like everybody's answer to everything, right? Like, you know, <laughs> oh, you got mag. a problem? Throw some cow mag on it. <laughs> just, oh, you got a yeah, problem? Oh, it's just cow mag, right? And running so, joke in the industry, huh? <laughs> yeah. And so it was funny because when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, I got a cow mag deficiency. But when you've been growing for 20 years, you're like, I've already got that shit nailed. I shouldn't have a cow mag deficiency, right? Right. Right. And but it looked like that, but then it turned into the actual look of rust, where the leaves would just turn this golden red brown, and they would just eat up right from the out from the from the radiuses of the leaf right in in into the like the last spot. It would just work itself inwards. Is how it seemed. Yeah, I wonder if that was like a leaf spot fungus, like alternaria alternata. Um, it could be. Yeah. It, do you have pictures of it? I'd love I to do. I do have pictures. In fact, I've been waiting to put this episode out. I think this episode for us is going to be key. But again, being so that it was. how old were the plants? Oh, uh, we're talking when that started, they were probably, I want to say nine inches tall. And they were probably okay. February, but they were probably at least two months in. Um, and did you did you see anything like uh, some sort of mycelial growth, like um, where the stem meets the soil, anything like that? No, the, that's the uh, other interesting thing is there was no like fungal type of indications. Like there was no, hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like there was no yeah. um, real specific fungal indications. It just literally like my plants got cancer overnight. Um, huh. And, and I it literally, it, it has bloomed into this kind of an episode where we, I'm actually talking about it with people. I 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's due to the crime, right? Right, and it being illegal and not well, people not being able to research it. Right, but actually, if you just type in rust fungus on your Google search bar, there is not a lot of info out there. I, so it's common in wheat, wheat, uh, crops. Um, what else is it called? And barberry, I feel like, is an alternative Russ are a weird one, so um, well. And again, I to, could be misidentifying, so this might be. I, I think it. I I can't say for certainty, but it sounds like so. Some fusarium wilts they can kind of cause this. Uh, if you look up tiger striping in hop plants, okay. caused by fusarium. Yeah, that could be it, or a leaf spot. I'm not totally sure. Um, you know, without seeing it and whatnot, but. If you're moving the plants indoors and outdoors, I'm assuming they were not like in outdoor native soil um, and they were in like containers of some sort. I was using one. Yeah, I was using a one gallon and I got sponsored by Good Earth Organics last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I used Gaia soil, which is actually, to be honest, but I'll be honest right now, I'm going to say this and not edit it, you know, using gross science and using Good Earth Organics Gaia soil significantly improved my crop last year wow that's awesome yeah, I'm, I'm, and i'm just going to note that it really we i probably doubled my i think i actually mathematically doubled my volume on my plants wow well that's awesome that's good to hear that's uh, really good to hear but you know my concern is i really wanted to turn that soil over because when i was talking with good earth organics they said that you know with this type of soil, you can get rid of about 30% of it. You can reamend right. it. You can build it back right. up and you can recycle. And this is really something I wanted to do. But now I'm a little scared right. to recycle any of that right. soil. Yeah, totally. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Um, oh, and that's another issue that people are going to have to face. There's a lot of facilities out there, not a lot, but there are facilities out there that are running organic living soil, no till quote unquote programs. And, you know, they reuse their soil cycle after cycle. And I've, I've seen at least one of them that did have, I, I believe that they were calling it a fusarium wilt fungus that they had diagnosed. I don't think I ever saw it, but in that instance, yeah, they kind of have to replace all that soil. Otherwise, there is the chance that you may get again. Now, okay, let's say we're a hemp farm and we got fusarium in the soil and we lose a quarter of our crop to um, fusarium wool. You can't replace all that soil. So there, but you, there are still methods to remediating that soil and trying to remove the fungus um, because this is not a problem just with cannabis. It's also a problem with other agricultural crops that we do have more research and experience with. So I guess it doesn't apply to you as much, but again, if a hemp farm were to get uh, one of these soil borne pathogens in there, some of that, I mean, okay. So the, what used to be used, it was called methyl bromide, which I believe that's illegal in the United States to use now, but that would kill everything. Um, other methods include like uh, dampening the soil. So, I mean, we could be talking about acres, right? And then putting like plastic, uh, plastic sheeting over the top of it and kind of baking that soil. It's called soil solarization. 
um, another method that people use is totally flooding the field to create an anaerobic, an anaerobic area because a lot of these fungi require oxygen to grow and function. So now they're creating an anaerobic environment for a while and then, you know, emptying out the field. So there are ways to deal with that, but in your situation, yeah, it, it may make sense just to get new soil or something like that. Well, or new soil. Um, or alternatively, I... you could, you know, sterilize it just in like a pressure cooker or something like that if you're concerned about it. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So, so there is options if, yeah. you know, if, if like for me, it, it might be possible to run a few, you know, 300 gallons, you know, of soil. Um, whereas someone else might not, you know, if you're running. And even that, that's a, that's a lot of soil, you know. Well, I mean, if you think about either. it, I run, I run 35s. I run 35 gals. I don't like to go bigger okay. than that, but I run 35 gals and I run 10. So do the math. It's okay. 350 yeah. gallons. Um, yeah. that's a significant amount of soil really. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, so yeah, I'd like to be able to turn it over. I'd like to be able to take a third out and reamend and, and make it work. Um, and actually have some experience with that, but it's just really, a it's a scary thing at this point. I'd rather, you know, start over. So, right. Right. So in that instance, you know, hypothetically, if you want to say you're in 35 gallon pots and say three of them were contaminated or whatever, I suppose you could just water the pots and then put like a uh, saran wrap, something like that over the top of it and kind of just like bake those pots and kill everything and then re-inoculate it with, you know, Every, Yeah, just start like essentially, that. yeah, start building it again. And I'm okay with right. that. Here's what, here's the thing about, I thought about that and what, logically speaking, it seems like if I've cured the plants, which I did, then shouldn't the soil be cured? Not necessarily, because okay. the plant has its own immune system, you know, and okay. maybe the plant just became somewhat resistant to that particular fusarium. But now you're growing from seed again, so there's a chance that maybe you're going to grow a susceptible just, plant and yeah. the fungus is there and it will get... I don't know. You right. know, there aren't... You, you, maybe. <laughs> and, and that's um, and that's the whole thing. That's why we're I'm trying to have these conversations with people that have some knowledge like you that um, know about fungus because man, this like I said, it can get you high, it can feed you, or it can kill you. Do you okay? So we can sidetrack from here. Is is are you good with all that information? Is there anything else you want to add to the um, the fungus issue? Soil pathogen. Okay, so uh, well, to touch back on Southern Oregon being this mecca for hemp, right? Right. I think another another factor that we or another vector for transmitting these fungal diseases or fungal pathogens is all the hemp workers. You know, going from farm to farm to farm, the tractors. A lot of the tractor work is contracted out, and those tractors are driving through the soil, and then they're going to the next farm, driving through that soil. So, yeah, I just want people to be aware, I guess, of the different ways that fungal diseases can be transmitted and just to be smart about it. And, you know, um, prevention is definitely the way to do Absolutely. And I, and I know that indoor growers have incorporated all kinds of ways that they have their workers or employees or whatever or themselves 
Like I, I know an indoor grower that you walk through a little thing of, I think it's bleach, but um, he makes you walk through this puddle of essentially yeah, yeah, I know you're you know what i'm saying so there's a lot of growers that use different methods or multiple methods to keep things as sterile as possible um i i and like you pointed out i don't think that a lot of outdoor growers are um you know and, and outdoor growers if you've got a few acres you might have you know a, quite a large team um mm -hmm. it's probably not necessarily three or four or five people it might be 10 15 right, or 20. Right. Um, coming in and out every day. So I have seen pictures on like Instagram and Facebook and stuff of people growing mushrooms right with their cannabis plants. Is there, is that just a polyculture type situation or is there some benefit there? Like, okay. So this is a good segue. You know, we've been talking about fungi and how they can ruin our cannabis crops and how they can be totally devastating, right? Well, they can also be very beneficial as right. well. Um, so I guess just to be clear, all mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi produce mushrooms, right? So there's the distinction between fungi and mushrooms. I, not that you said anything, but just to like clear that up. Because I know sometimes it's like, wait, what's the difference between the fungus and a mushroom? Well, oh, so, so let me make this even clearer, I think, is that not everything has fruiting bodies. Correct. So the mushroom's just the fruiting body right. of certain fungi. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there are a lot of fungal pathogens that exist in the soil, but in a healthy soil system, there's also a large community of beneficial fungi. A number of these fungi, and we call them saprophytic fungi, meaning that they're just degrading and breaking down dead organic materials. So if you have any bit of organic matter in your soil, you likely have some saprophytic fungi in there as well. Um, so those are very beneficial to agriculture because those fungi are breaking down these complex organic molecules and potentially releasing a number of different enzymes into the soil environment and interacting with the plants and other microorganisms that are down there. In addition to that, then, you know, hopefully you have this healthy fungal community in your soil and then you'll have ideally, a uh, healthy community of fungal nematodes that are eating these fungi and consuming them and then excreting waste in a plant-available form. Or earthworms, they also like to eat these filamentous fungi. Um, so in that way, then we're creating that whole soil food web. You know, Dr. Elaine Ingham, she's a, she's a big proponent of that. Um, and fungi play a key role in that system. So a lot of those fungi that I, was, that I was talking about are microscopic and you won't necessarily see them. Um, the most famous one is going to be penicillium. Uh, that is a soil-borne fungus that happens to produce a secondary metabolite called penicillin that um, what Alexander Fleming discovered around World War II time. So... A lot of these soil fungi, in addition to breaking down organic compounds in the soil, well, they also produce novel metabolites that may benefit humans besides just in growing the plant. Um, 
And there are a number of other examples. Sure. And is that something that we're researching? Is that something that is on the forefront, possibly, of, of mushroom or fungal research? No? Mm, you know, that'd be like bioprospecting. And it's very difficult. It's like a needle in a haystack, right? There's so many yeah. fungal organisms that we haven't even looked at. Each organism produces so many different compounds and different compounds in different environments. So it's just like, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing it, but it's hard to convince people with money that they should be spending it on that one. There's, it's just not a guarantee that you're going to get a result. That no, but we can also take that to an extreme. Um, and I think this it covers, you know, fungus and stuff as well is that they can actually be psychoactive medicines. Um, that might be up for debate, but uh, fungus has a lot of ways of showing itself as a psychoactive or uh, consciously changing your, you know, um, mental state. Uh, n not necessarily for the worse, but maybe for the better. Um, is that something that you agree with, or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say absolutely. That is something that I, yeah, yeah, that's definitely something I agree with. Um, I think that fungi in general, yeah, it's amazing the different things that they do. Um, you know, soy sauce, bread, beer, that's all fungi. Right. Um, yeah, LSD was derived, Albert Hoffman discovered it, and that was derived from an endophytic fungus that grows on rye. Right. And it actually produces a little sclerotium on the rye kernel um called ergot claviceps purpurea that is the fungus and then they call ergot is like a common name and then albert hoffman was looking for birth contraceptives i can't remember exactly what he was looking for accidentally discovered lsd so yeah and then other psychedelic mushrooms such as philosophy amanita muscaria um, right which you know is and, interesting and because I, I often wonder how much of these fungal fruits or, or fungus has um, been involved with us over the millennia. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into, like, I, I don't want to get into anybody's religious positions, but at the same time, I mean, we've had this relationship with plants that has extended way, way back. Um, and we've even seen evidence of uh, psychoactive use as far as 60,000 years ago. So um, it, I often wonder how much that has added to our evolution, even if you only want to say it's, you know, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 years, whatever. Um, Are you familiar with the stone eight? hypothesis by uh terence mckenna yeah I've, I've actually done a lot of uh that's probably why you say that is i've done a lot of research on that and i often wonder if there's not some partial truth to that for sure yeah yeah you know i i, I don't know but it, it makes sense to me yeah that and the fact that you know psychedelics are very um they're they leave impressions um and they can be used as a tool. I, you know, thinking about cannabis and mushrooms together, I almost think that might be fifty percent of a medicine cabinet. Uh, I, I mean, I, realistically speaking, you know, for the, you know, given certain like edibles for me takes care of my um, 
my uh, I have bad um, arthritis. And so mm -hmm. at night, if I don't take an edible by five or six o'clock at night, I'm hurting and I'm have to, I have to take either ibuprofen or an edible, but edibles work wow. great. So if I'm able to take an edible for my pain and then I'm able to take some mushrooms in a controlled setting for some mental issues or depression or PTSD or something that, I mean, right there, those two things could help people considerably um, all around. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think in that example, right, cannabis is kind of uh, helping with more physical right. ailments, whereas the mushrooms, maybe it's more spiritual, mental, sure. what, you know. And yeah, I, I, I think that mushrooms are very powerful and they can be used to help people in a lot of different situations. Um, they've helped me in a lot of situations. I can say that. You oh, know, well, that's great. I, 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 same thing here. Mushrooms continually, um, help me. Yeah. Um, and it's not something, what I like about psychedelics is that it's not something, um, I imagine some people, I think you can abuse anything, but, um, and I also think that not everybody should, cannabis isn't for everybody. Psychedelics aren't for everybody. You know, steak isn't for everybody. Um, right. you know what I mean? Right. So, uh, I think that you can overdo <laughs> and abuse anything. And I think that not everything yeah. is made for everybody, but at the same time, I think that on average, you can get some benefit from using cannabis and these entheogens essentially, um, that we've so dislocated from. Okay. Yeah. I yeah, am switching I mean, gears. Yeah. Sorry about that. Switching gears. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally think so. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that it can really help us in what in this modern world. We're in this modern world. We're just so constantly bombarded bombarded with distractions and technology. And it, yeah, sure, it can be used for our benefit for sure. But a lot of the social media and stuff, it just like doesn't make me personally feel very good. And I think, yeah, psychedelics can help bring us back to our true nature, whatever you want to call it. Um, last year I went down, I had the opportunity to go down to Ecuador and, um, spend some time well with done. the tribe in the Amazon and try ayahuasca. Um, yeah. Speaking of a theogen and that one is very, it was a very powerful experience that, so we drank it, um, three nights not back to back. It was like, drink one night, wow. take a night off, drink one <laughs> night, take a night off, drink one night, take a night off. Um, after the first one, it was like, I don't know what the hell that oh, wow. shit was, but that was not fun. Like I should have just stayed in the United States, done mushrooms, stayed in my lane. I know that, you, you know, and it was just like, I, I was blown away by this experience. Right. And then the next night I had a different experience, kind of like totally different, you know? And it was like, okay, I see why this is cool. And I like, yeah, um, you could definitely learn a lot from it. And, you know, so that was a really cool experience to have. Um, I think that people feel like those are bad, that what people would label bad trips. And that's the thing about psychedelics right, being right. a mental thing is that I think psychedelics, not only does it teach you things, but that's the, that's the whole point. That's the whole framework behind psychedelics is the fact that you're learning things now. So psychedelics will make you very vulnerable. They will make you 
open up, they'll make you like very self-conscious. And if you can't handle that, or if you haven't worked through that first, it's very hard for a new person to, basically what you're doing is working through your shit. And then when you get through your shit, then that's where the recreational yeah. side might come out. There's still lessons to be learned, but um, like anything else, that's also applying it after you're done tripping and you download that. Right, right. I used to say that, like, you know, in my younger teenage years and whatnot, I experimented with psychedelics and now I'm able to use them more, but for beneficial purposes. But I don't know. I still feel like I'm experimenting with them and like learning. Just when I think like I'm having figured out, that's when it's like it just changes my perspective on everything. And, um, yeah, I think they're a really powerful tool for, for me, how I like to use them is like self-reflection and kind of checking in every once in a while. It's like, how am I doing in life? What do I need to work on? You know, sometimes it's like mundane things. Oh, you shouldn't talk like this to this person or, (laughs) you know, stop being such a dick. That's one that I encounter a lot. Just don't be such a dick, man. It's all right. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, there's benefit using them routinely, you know, right. every periodically so often, like that's cool. Um, people, this, it's interesting because there's so much research, like scientific research from Johns Hopkins and other universities uh, coming out. And a lot of people benefit right. just from one experience, one high dose experience, maybe. And some people, maybe they want to take multiple smaller doses and, it's kind of different for everyone. So, um, I think there's a lot, a lot of work that can be done in that. And just for the everyday person that is interested in experimenting with it, I suggest doing it with somebody, you know, who knows what they're doing, who has done it before that can, you know, act as a sitter for you. And I think it can help to do some research about it prior to having right, your first right, experience. Right. Sometimes you can kind of psych yourself out. I feel like by like over reading about it. Um, well, yeah. And just like, try not to fight it. Right. Cause it's like when you try to resist it, that's when it seems like the, that's the underlying lesson is that, um, that that's how life is. We, we need to not resist it. Yeah. And that's cool. Life lesson in there, you know, that these organisms, taught me in a roundabout way (laughs) um i'll tell you though that in general uh, for me it seems like a lot of psychedelics are similar but for instance like dmt when i experience dmt you know that is there is no gray area with dmt there is either you are in the zone or you're not yeah, um, have you seen those like vape cartridges of DMT? Uh, actually, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Um, it's funny because like one of my really good friends, I just had try my pen, and mm-hmm. uh, he thought I said THC, but I said DMT. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I and I said I said this is really strong DMT, and he thought I said THC, and then so I said, but you can't get through the third hit. I said you won't get past the third hit, and he said. Oh yeah, I will. And he goes, <laughs> and oh, after the third man. hit, yeah. Well, so after the third hit, we were in my studio. So after the third hit, I said, okay, bye-bye. So I got my, I started putting my shit together and, you know, doing my stuff around the studio. Cause I knew he was gone. And for the next right. eight minutes, it blew his world. And what was funny is when he was going into those eight minutes, the first thing he said was, I can't believe you carry this around in your pocket. Wow. That's awesome. That's yeah. good to hear. So, and, and not and like I that's mean, some, 
I I'm just not. don't think that there's one right way to use them. You know, I back in the day when I first started experimenting, I was like, okay, you eat an eighth of mushrooms every time because that's what a dose right, is, and right. like, you eat a whole. And you know, I I think that people can use them in all sorts of different ways, and they can, you know, go out to a concert and have a good time or a music festival or whatever, or they can. Stay and work in garden projects or, you know, and I feel that you could get different experiences in, in the different environments. And I don't think that there's just one right way to use them. Um, also too, for, me, I, for DMT, I, when I do it, I, I, I only do it if I want to blast off. I don't think to just like that come up feeling of DMT. That's like my least favorite part. Whenever I smoke DMT, I'm like, I should, why did I do this? I knew I should have done it, you know? Yeah. And then I just keep smoking it and it's like, oh man, this doesn't feel good. And then all of a sudden I blast off and it's like, oh yeah. And then I come back and it's like, all right, yeah, now I remember why I did it. Right, right, um, right. Um, but, you know, and with all the interviews I've done recently, I'm starting to find that there are a large section of professional people, just like cannabis, it's, it's, to me, it's not really new to, to discover this stuff, but there's a lot of successful people, uh, very successful people that consume psychedelics in some form or fashion as a tool, um, way as much or more than people that consume cannabis. It's almost like a hand-in-hand -hand thing. Like the people I've talked to that have done cannabis have actually experienced with psychedelics and they're happy with it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just really a weird relationship. And I'm starting to see that some of the most successful people I'm able to talk to actually consume psychedelics, not, you know, I not in a, not in a, uh, abusive way. I, I think it's hard to abuse psychedelics because you can just lose your shit. But, um, but these people that use it as a tool are very successful. So I think that previously psychedelics, you know, have kind of been stigmatized. So I don't know if it, you know, is correlated with the legalization and whatnot of cannabis or not, but it definitely seems like these substances, these psychedelic substances are becoming more and more accepted by like our mainstream society. You know, big magazines like Time Magazine and I, I forget others, but, you know, a lot of these more mainstream media sources are reporting on uses of psychedelics and how they can be beneficial and whatnot. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I think that, you know, the microdosing in Silicon Valley or whatever, that, that was a good, like, jumping off point for psychedelics and kind of just made people more aware of it. And, just kind of taught people that it's not just hippie burnout druggies that use these things, right? That um, successful people can use them. I know the guy who invented PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction, um, which is a machine that's used to amplify a section of DNA before it gets sequenced. Uh, so it's called PCR. Yeah. And um, that's used in any sort of sequencing dna sequencing right and the guy who invented that which is so my point being that was like a pretty big invention um but he attributes a lot of that to um psychedelics right 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 um and i think like steve Jobs, you know a lot of these like big figures well I th that's the thing is that it, a lot of people haven't even admitted to it 
um, that are probably more successful than I talk to for sure um, that just haven't admitted to it yet because of the propaganda. And what's what I find very interesting is that we I find it hard to accept people saying that we haven't had a relationship with plants for a long time. Um, we Indians used plants. Um, the Sami back in Northern Europe, Northern Western Europe used Amanitas. Amanitas with the Sami culture were, um, uh, you know, they gave them to kids, they gave them to adults. They used them as a way to pass, like Amanitas were used for death back then where people didn't have morphine. And so they would right. take their elders and they would dose them up for days at a time so that they could, you know, have less pain. And, you know, that probably being the only medicine they had at the time, I get that. But at the same time, we've had this relationship and that relationship has somehow, I'm sure, affected us. For anybody now to say that that's all like evil or I don't know what it is, you know, I don't, how getting high seems to be like a sin of some, I don't get that. I see how it can lead to problems, but I don't see how it is a bad thing. In fact, I often wonder if the psychoactive nature of certain drugs is actually beneficial. Well, that may be the prime reason why it is illegal, because it makes us think outside the box. And when you think outside the box, then it's less easy to herd all the sheep right well so, yeah and i think that I, I don't know that no is, it, i'm not i'm not and i'm not trying to speculate either but at the same time if you think about it, it religion back in the day was all about plants and uh that has evolved into that's all bad and so the right. basis of most religion now is that those kinds of things are bad which is funny because again most religions probably came from psychedelics <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Or at least yeah. have them incorporated in those religious, like ayahuasca, the Indians with peyote. You know, do you know? I've sat through um, uh, uh, sweat lodges, uh, legitimate sweat lodges with medicine awesome. in, and they take peyote and don't like cannabis. Like when I was going through a sun dance with these Indians, it's, it's an eight day spread, and four of those eight days is usually with peyote. They took the peyote very seriously and that peyote was a part of their whole, like a Sundance doesn't just include adults. A Sundance has kids. Um, they share the peace pipe around with families. Uh, this stuff is, you know, and then even getting back into like where the rites of passage, you know, we don't have like kids just go through puberty today and have no, no stepping stone. Like, you know right, what we say right. is, well, you got to get on antidepressants or, <laughs> you know, you're just going to feel odd for like five years. That's yeah, right, right. Whereas right. back in the day, we would put kids through this psychedelic experience and they'd come out the other side with a completely different mind frame and set and understand it and have knowledge of drugs. And, you know, you didn't see these old cultures like the Sami culture. You didn't see them with kids that had drug problems. Right. Like these kids didn't yeah. run around eating Amanita all day. Right, know? right, right. So. Yeah, I don't know. I guess my hope is with newer generations, you know, maybe experiencing these things and being more open to them that, you know, hopefully the laws surrounding these compounds will change and they will become more accessible and available to 
for people to experiment with in a controlled setting. Um, and well, you know about way. the 2020, right? The 2020 initiative here in Oregon. Yeah, we have a we have several initiatives, but there's a main one going on 2020 that is um, uh, for Portland, Oregon, to legalize. <laughs> Psychedelics. Mushroom Society or something. I, I know uh, I've seen uh, a few people, different organizations canvassing for that. Like uh, decriminalized nature. Meeting. Right, right. Decriminalized nature is the big one. Um, I've interviewed him. My, in fact, two episodes ago, they were on. And right, I saw that. I saw yeah, that. Yeah, and so, but yeah, the, those are people. Those are the people that are actually this the the backbone of all that. Yeah, that's um, awesome. They're the ones that are hitting the streets and getting signatures and doing it nonprofit, and you know, um, and it's really working. So I'm. It's really. We'll see what happens in 2020 with this initiative. Hopefully, something gets passed. Yeah, and experienced people that have experienced it before, maybe they have. They don't need to go to this hospital to get access to these substances. Maybe right. Um, I don't know. I agree with you where I, I'm not sure if I would like it in like a hospital type setting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know here in Eugene, there's a certain group that was doing some research on that and you would go into a room and then they'd hook stuff up to your head and they'd, you know, and I, w I should, I should look into that again um, because I know they're looking for participants and you go and you eat a set dose and they kind of try to measure what's going on and gauge your experience and whatnot. But yeah, I'm definitely more of a at home in the woods by myself type. Uh. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I've found that for me, mushrooms is like, I, I can't explain it except that it's like a zone. It's like a, it's like different things cause different zones for me. So when I play video games, on mushrooms when i sit down and hit that start button my whole head like just you know it's just it's right into that screen and then everything exists only right there and i my focus is so incredible like i can focus on the whole screen generally when you look at something your direct stare is what you see where you directly right. look at and your peripheral is kind of just a cloud when I'm on mushrooms, that peripheral is clear and I can focus on all those you know, areas while I'm doing other things. So my video games, my logic, my thinking all gets a lot clearer, especially if I put myself in those zones. So on the flip side though, so if I'm doing mushrooms, I like to try to find different zones. So like a couple of weekends ago, I took mushrooms and went into a cemetery. And that put me into a much different uh, spiritual zone that was nothing like, you know, playing a video game <laughs> or focusing or anything hmm. like that. And, and those mindsets are, for me, are easily achieved. So I can like, if I get up from that video game to go to the bathroom, cause I got the mushroom peas. Like, I don't know what hmm. mushrooms, but they make me pee a lot. But um, if, if I if I get up to go to the bathroom and I'm playing a video game, I suck, like I come back out of it. Like, you know, okay. And then I kind of stumble around, you know, I'm seeing shit, fuck, the carpet's growing, you know, the, the curtains are, you know, twisting and shit. Yeah, yeah. And dancing. I'm all messed up. But then I hit, hit that start button and 
right back into it. It's really crazy. Mm. Do you find that similar? Like, cause you talked about doing it in the woods and stuff. I mean, and same thing, every time I incorporate a different environment, there's a different experience. Yeah, I definitely agree that with different environments, you get different experiences. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't play video games. I can't relate to that one. <laughs> and I guess the one that I have been doing most or like lately is, um, just taking like five grams. I think this was a Terrence McKenna thing was taking five grams and like sitting in a dark room with uh, no noise or anything. Sure. And that's a favorite. So that's of kind of, yeah, that's kind of been my preferred way to do it lately. Um, you know, but I've gone through periods of my life where I'm going to concerts, going out to bars yeah. and, you know, and from what I've gathered, I like them in all those situations, you know, even the bar one. I, it, um, it makes me more empathetic and understanding of human nature. And sometimes I can, like I said, I can just kind of be a dick and like uptight. And, like, um, and that kind of loosens me up and just, it makes me feel like, all right, I get why someone may be doing that or whatever it may be. Um, but I really enjoy now that I've gotten older and have kind of learned to work with these substances a little bit more, I do like going out into nature and kind of interacting with um, all the different trees and plants and fungi and birds and everything that's in there. Um, there's an interesting book called The Cosmic Serpent. Yeah, The Cosmic Serpent. And it kind of talks about the similarity. Uh, this is kind of getting off subject a little bit, but it talks about psychedelics and their uses through different um, communities, civilizations throughout history and whatnot. Um, but one of the things that made me think about, which is kind of on bringing it back, is that perhaps when we take these psychedelic substances, uh, so our DNA emits and receives signals in the form of biophotons it's called which there is legitimate research on biophotons right so our dna can emit and receive different signals uh through wavelengths of light maybe it's similar to that i'm not sure exactly um but i think that maybe when we take psychedelics we're just able to tune into that frequency way more and in that way kind of more so interact with these organisms that previously or People think you can't talk to a tree. You can't do that. But I don't know. I'm sure sometimes it certainly feels like I can. Like you said, like literally have a tree talk to me, not like it's got its own personality and shit. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. But like there's information, knowledge that is shared from yeah. that because totally. I'm consciously focused on it or something. I don't know. But it's not information that's just readily available if you're quote unquote sober. Right, um, right. Like you said, like it must be a wavelength or a, a vibration or something that you're keyed into that allows you to tap into those things. Um, right. I, I appreciate this, man. We're going on an hour and 24. I really enjoyed this. So thank you very much for having me on and uh, talking with me about all these things. And we still need to link up one of these times when I'm down in Southern Oregon and you know, continue these conversations. I'm Lady Sativa, and you've just listened to The Dirt Show. 
If you liked this episode, please like, share, comment, and go to organrooted.com where you can subscribe to us on your favorite platform like iTunes, Pandora, or Spotify. Also, check out our YouTube for videos and IG, Facebook, and Twitter for all our updates. Thank you for listening.